welcome to Peaks, where we take a closer look at the most exciting peak years of the people that dominated pop culture. My name's John Koppel, and my very special guest today is my good friend, Mark Riccadonna. What's up, dude? Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. You're the first returning guest ever. All right. So it's a goddamn honor. They're going to you're going to be doing an episode of when Mark Riccadonna peaked on doing your show. Can can you be a guest? Just a cameo, because yeah. I think that if it would be overwhelming if it was like you talking about you the whole time. But if you just dropped in, and dropped just, in and was like, you know, the second episodes, I feel when Mark was peaking. And <laughs> That's when he really just had the world at his feet. He was just so powerful. So after we recorded our first episode, the Ben Stiller episode, which by the way, we shot out of the gate, man, that, that went very well. And I love you for doing that with me. Cause I, it's, it was one of my favorite episodes from season one, but within 10 minutes after that, we were talking and we came across a guy that we both love. The, legendary John Candy. Oh, he's the best. So why don't you just start by telling me why did you choose John Candy? Well, mostly it was because you and I started talking about him and then we were like, (laughs) we should do an episode on John Candy. (laughs) But uh, something, and it was with the Ben Stiller episode, there's something about watching any of his work, even if it's just a drop in or a sketch from, you know, SCTV. Anything you watch that has John Candy involved, you immediately fall in love with him. You immediately enjoy his work. And you feel, I mean, everybody says it, and it's the go-to line that throughout anybody, you feel like he's everybody's uncle. The, The uncle you wish you had. You know, him and Bill Murray are the two uncles that you wish you had. At Thanksgiving, you want to look over and watch your dad just be embarrassed because... Uncle Bill and Uncle John are cracking him up. <laughs> I I so agree. And all of his characters felt so real. And he he didn't play the same characters again and again. He definitely had range, but his characters had a brand. Yeah. You know, they, they were never the brightest, but they were always well-meaning and funny. And they would get pissed off maybe once or twice and say something cutting and it counted. Yeah, <laughs> we counted when when he got mad. When somebody that was that lovable and takes that much shit all of a sudden unloads back, you know it was a real moment. That it was like there was no way around that. Yeah, so we're recording this on October fourth. It has been an absolutely insane time, and I have spent a lot of time with John Candy over the last couple of weeks preparing Lucky for this episode. You. It's what my soul needed, Mark. Oh. It's like, my goodness. And maybe because this is probably going to be released sometime around Thanksgiving, and we might be looking back on October 4th and like, that's when the world made sense. That's when <laughs> hit the fan. Who knows the way 2020 is going? But like, boy, he he really is it just so special. So something interesting that you're you're mentioning of it being uh, released in November is there's no time that's more John Candy than Thanksgiving to Christmas. From mm-hmm. Thanksgiving to Christmas, if you're not watching John Candy movies, you're doing the holidays wrong. <laughs> yes. Between Uncle Buck and Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, it's Every single member of my family has both on DVD and VHS, and they are on a loop during the holidays with other movies getting sprinkled in. Yeah. And, but those, those two have to be in the rotation. 
Well, it, it does harken back to a time when the family movies were something different than what they are now. Yeah. I mean, it, Disney wasn't rolling with, you know, the, the animated features and Pixar wasn't, you know, this locomotive and Pixar is great. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, back then you would if you were a kid and we're we're the same age yeah. you're 7 8 9 years old your parents are going to take you to the theater and we watched movies that kids wouldn't have necessarily gravitated to today yeah. and they were fantastic and john candy by the end of his run he felt like he was a part of all of our families absolutely oh my god i i, I the unsung hero is john hughes in all of the, oh, he's going to be sung today. <laughs> dude. I love John Hughes. I'm always amazed at that dude's output. And we both know dudes that cannot write a good joke a year. This guy was pumping out <laughs> five, six scripts a year. He was just insane. And the way they all resonated. He knew how to use the people that he hired, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm, there's... You just take, and this is, I know this is a movie that uh, John Candy was actually in, but it was a very small part, but a very powerful part, but take the movie Home Alone, and Mm. you look at how he created this family that somehow becomes your family, you watch the whole thing unwind, and he's in a neighborhood, you know, out in Chicago or whatever, and it's like, you, it's the same with Uncle Buck. You just all of a sudden you're like, yeah, this is this is home. Well, you mentioned, John, you mentioned Home Alone. And I feel like his Candy's goodness always came across Mm -hmm. and hopped off the screen. I mean, I think being likable is part of being a movie star. But still, he was in rarefied air. Uh, from the likability standpoint, everyone, you just saw him and you rooted for him. And when you look into like background on John Candy, you find out it's because he was the greatest dude in the world. Like John (laughs) Hughes wasn't the uh, director of Home Alone. He was the writer and producer. And that was the one day he came to the set. He's like, that's the John Candy day. And John Candy as a favor did it for scale. So when he got to the set, John Hughes surprised him and had him work for 23 hours. Wow. And Candy's riffing. And that was an incredible performance that he put on in that movie. Yeah. And of course, didn't complain and made it memorable. And because that's who he was. And that's how you have a guy that has the near perfect approval rating that John Candy had. No, I I don't want to step on a story if you're going to tell it later, but the only the lonely story. Oh, hit it. Okay, so uh, he's working with Maureen O'Hara, who's, you know, a movie star from the studio days. Mm -hmm. She's a movie star, you know, from the motion pictures. And um, apparently they got him a giant, beautiful trailer because he was the star. And this was also like, um, we're going to definitely talk about this later, but this is when he was trying to change gears and play a little more serious roles and see if he could break out of being the comedic John Candy we all know and love. And they had Maureen O'Hara because her star's kind of fallen staying in a a regular trailer uh, in between shots. And John Candy was like, how does she not have 
Jane Trea, like she's yeah, the she full was, star treatment. Why isn't she in the gigantic, beautiful? Yeah, like she was in a quiet man. Like, come on, like <laughs> this is what, what is this? And um, they were like, Well, we don't have enough money, you know, to do that. And so he was like, Well, then she gets my trailer and I'll take hers. He was probably the size of the room, and I'm not making a fat <laughs> joke as much as I am. Hey, man, those those trailers are small, and he switched with her. But uh, apparently Belushi said somehow they coughed up the money and got two nice trailers. <laughs> <laughs> they apparently all came to him saying, why are you in this trailer? And he explained why. And they said, no, 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 we'll figure something out. He said, it's not a big deal because I know you don't have enough money. And then after like two days, <laughs> they're like, you know what? We got you a trailer. We came up with the money. He goes, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you do a movie and have a legend like that staying in a small Thing, let candy. alone John Candy too. I mean, like, if you're shooting a movie that with that much prestige, you should really figure out how to make the, the stars comfortable. Is John Candy the most lovable actor ever? I'm gonna say yes. I uh, th- this is the short list that I came up with. Uh, Chris Farley. Yeah, yes, but Chris Farley is like the if if John Candy's the uncle that everybody loves, Chris Farley's the cousin everybody loves. But he might be smoking pot behind the shed after dinner. He might, might be smoking be, crack. Yeah, he might be shooting heroin down in the base. Like there's yeah. there's hidden secrets. A lot. But to, you cared. You were so concerned. Yeah, you love Farley, him, but love at him. the same time, there's secrets with Farley where I feel like John Candy, you're getting who you're getting. Yeah. Okay, Hanks, Paul Rudd. Oh man, see your name. Denzel Washington. These just people. Whenever you see them, it's like you know, Denzel Washington in Flight is a garbage person, and he <laughs> but you is still a like junkie. Him. And you're like, Do I, I don't know. I don't want him to lose his pilot's license. Like, yeah, he's putting people's <laughs> lives in danger, but you're still pulling for him. Like, hey, he's got to figure this out. I want that junkie up in the air. Yeah, I, I, I think John Candy wins out on that whole list. I think he wins out because he is the guy. I mean, in Uncle Buck, he's a broken man. He could be, you know, with Dale Griffin, he's the... You know, all the for all of his faults, he puts the cards right on the table and lets you know. Like Denzel, he's so likable, but he's also keeping cards close to his chest. He doesn't show his flaws like John Candy, where you embrace him. You know, and uh, Paul Rudd is he's like this lovable goofball, but there's something about that big fat John Candy smile just go. <laughs> And you job. just want to hug the guy. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you. And and the uncanny number, just when you're looking through his filmography, the number of classics he had before he was a leading actor, even. I mean, Blues Brothers, Stripes, wow. National Lampoon's Vacation, Splash, Brewster's Millions. I mean, just that he intersected with all of it. Yeah. I mean, he did have a couple movies that I'm gonna say. Were, that the they movie was good. The the movie wasn't good, but he was always good. <laughs> right. He he as uh I think Danny and I said in the Jim Carrey podcast, he could raise the floor for the movie a little bit because he was gonna yeah. give you something. He was yeah. gonna give you at least a few moments in an otherwise crappy movie going experience <laughs> where it's like, all right, well, that part was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> that I liked. 
Yeah, I mean, and and his first beginning years, I'm gonna I'm gonna look here real fast. I'm gonna cheat. Up into, I mean, not counting SCTV, ah, Blues Brothers is his first win. Sure, yeah, Blues Brothers is his first win. After that, right. I feel like it. That's when his career began as an oh, yeah. American actor. Mm-hmm. TV, he was amazing, but it's after Blues Brothers that he becomes the American John Candy. I agree. We are going to give a little love to our um, podcast network. After we do that, we're going to go into where the world was in 87 and, and blow through John Candy's tremendous career. But first, how about that wasted robot podcast network? I have a question for you, Mark. Have you yeah. ever felt emotions? Once or twice. Then do we have the podcast for you? Feel Feelings is a weekly podcast where comedians Danny Getz and George Bruderman sit down with some of the funniest, most emotionally distraught people, i.e. comedians, that they know, and they talk feelings. Every Friday, hear very funny people reminisce on Ren and Stimpy, worry about the Wizard of Oz, and emote over their emo phase. Check out Feel Feelings with Danny and George, a show about feelings and the things that make you feel them. I like Are you it. in? I'm in. I'm in. There you go. I don't know there if I'd go. be good on it. Oh, you're you're an emotional man. <laughs> I know. I, I definitely am. We always jo- we joke with my wife because her last name was Schroeder and she calls herself Shrobot. She's like, <laughs> I didn't have feelings until I met you. <laughs> oh no. So you opened them all up on her? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm Mr. Hug and Hug and Kiss and Hold Hands and she was like, "Why are we doing this in public?" <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect segue. So the peak of John Candy uh, in my opinion, is 1987 to 1989. So first, let's talk about what was going on in the world in 1987. Prozac debuted in the United States. No. Yeah, speaking of feeling emotions, yeah. um, first ever, the first ever criminal was convicted using DNA evidence. Reagan mm-hmm. made his famous Berlin Wall speech. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Tear down this wall. I remember that. I was Yours a- is so much better than mine. It's good, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stock markets around the world crashed, dropping 22.6% on October 19th of that year. Uh, the first ever episodes of Full House aired, and The Simpsons first aired on The Tracy Ullman Show. Whoa. Big year for family comedy. The John yeah. Candy breakout and Full House, The Simpsons. Hell yeah. Uh, wow. Aretha Franklin became the first female artist inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fox Broadcasting made its primetime debut. Whoa. Is that with, is that married with children? It might be. I'm trying to think. It, it, Married with Children was their flagship show, but I don't know if they were on from the very beginning. Okay. Could have been. That's one of them. Thank you, Danny. You're the best. Dan is the man. Dan's the man. All right. Do you know what the top grossing movie of 1987 was? Unfortunately, I think I saw your post. <laughs> so I'm not going to answer this like I know, because I would have never in a billion years guessed it. Three Men and a Baby 
the number one grossing movie in 1987. It was released the same day as Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and it made about 240 million versus Planes, Trains making about 50 million. So for all you people that think that the world just got stupid, it's been stupid for a long time. Yeah, it just goes to show you, you can get the best ingredients, but if you don't mix it right, (laughs) doesn't mean the dish is going to be good. Because if you told me there's a movie with Tom Selleck and Ted Danson, I would have been like, are you kidding me? I want to see this movie. And then you showed me that movie. I would go, come on, no, show me the real movie. Show me the real one. If somebody showed you the movie poster, you'd be like, okay, you're fucking with me. Yeah, this Stop. is this is a crime-fighting duo <laughs> in Boston that are, like, kicking ass and taking names, right? No, yeah. it's just three boring guys raising a child that talks? Yeah, and uh, that's, that's the big laugh. It's like, it's three men, and they're trying to take care of this baby. Can you believe it? They're just sloppy men. They don't know how to hold a child. They what, what would they know about it? They're just men. And then that bombed, and they were like, "Let's add John Travolta and make the baby talk." <laughs> right. <laughs> right, and somehow all those movies killed. Listen, yeah. the make American money. public not that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Planes, trains, and automobiles is definitely in my top five favorite movies of all time. Well, you know what else came out that year? The Princess Bride. And that oh. made about 30 million. So three men and a baby did eight times better than the princess bride. When was your oh. last three men and a baby conversation? When was the last time it was, at a party, somebody was quoting three men and a baby to you? Probably the day it came out, but it never <laughs> happened to me. Um, never, yeah. You were at a seven year old's birthday party and someone <laughs> quoted, you're like, get out of my face with that bullshit, please. Fortunately, I hang out with men. And <laughs> nobody would dare discuss three men and a baby. Oh, man. All right. So I want to go down. This has become a little bit of a tradition, but I find this fascinating. The top 10 movies of that year, since that, that's where we're starting. So we're, going, we're starting 87, right? 87. Because 86, 86 was a very steam engine year for candy. He had some, he had some winners in 86. He did. We'll get to it. Yeah. Top 10 movies, 87, three men and a baby, fatal attraction, Beverly Hills cop two. Oh, that's a good, good morning. One. Vietnam. That's a good one. Moonstruck secret of my success, which played a lot with me and my cousins. I never even knew that it was a hit movie, but okay. <laughs> we loved anything that Michael J. Fox was in. Yeah. Uh, Stakeout. Fun, underrated movie. Uh, Lethal Weapon, which I love. And The Witches of Eastwick. So also that year, as I said, Princess Bride, Mannequin, big hit in my house. Yeah, well, you you grew up in the Philly area. So you guys were looking for that Woolworths. Yeah, I was looking looking for a young Kim Cattrall to come to life. Mannequin. Kim Woods filmed at Woolworths. <laughs> also, Lost Boys, Adventures oh, in Babysitting. That was a and, that was a big hit for the Rigadonna House. Oh my god, that movie was so much fun! It's it was like we need to do a, a Goonies in the suburbs, like suburb suburbs, not like they find a treasure map. So, hot had, take. 
Adventures in Babysitting better than Goonies. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I said it. Mm-hmm. I'm making headlines on the Peaks podcast, and also Evil Dead Two. Oh, anything yeah. with Bruce Campbell. Yeah, he's another subject you should have soon. Oh, you're. You know what? Maybe you just you just got yourself a spot on season three of Peaks. <laughs> so Hit the boomstick. The, the late '80s is the era when for comedy. Because back then, I think a lot of the types of movies that we grew up with, that we love, the mid-level movies, and those are the ones that end up resonating with you, they've gone away. Those are on Netflix now. Now it's all indie flicks and the big budget superhero flicks, and and studios don't want to take the risk on the mid-level stuff. But this was the era when Billy Crystal broke out. Eddie Murphy was still Eddie Murphy. Robin Williams was crushing it. Bill Murray. Tom Hanks was a comedy star back then. Michael Keaton was a comedy star. I mean, it was yeah. a good time for comedy I, movies. I, I 100% agree with you on the mid-level has gone away. And those are the movies that, to me, um, hold all of my memories. They're the movies that you'd go to a blockbuster film and just look at the cover and then flip it over and look at the pictures. And then if it excited you, you'd read what it was about. And it was always those movies that grabbed you because they were simple. They were simple stories told very well. Where now I feel like it's complex stories barely told. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's that's well put. Those the Marvel movies and stuff. Yes, they're great, and you know they're the the movies you want to go to the theater and see and eat popcorn, which now we can't really do, but. Those movies get made, and then the ones that are like so under budget. Those mid-level ones, that's that's where the stars really made a difference, and they would charm you and yeah. kind of keep you riveted. And if you go with kids, you need somebody that was just so captivating to, to kind of keep everybody in their place. Yeah. And as much as good writing is the most important thing to me as an adult, as a kid, I think star power – probably trumped yep. good writing oh, yeah. and and that's why as a kid i fell in love with guys like john candy and bill murray and a kevin costner i mean would it could a kevin costner break out now you know that's yeah. they they needed those types of flicks to have a chance to well, really I mean, shine how in. often as a kid did you and you know with your brother and you guys would do something like you were home from school sick and they go well what do you, what are you gonna do like and then your parents would be like, I got you a Bill Murray movie. They never said it by the title. It was I yeah. got a John Candy movie, a Bill Murray movie, uh, you know, Chevy Chase movie, uh, you know, whoever the it that star power did. Because you knew it was like, oh, it's a John Candy movie. No matter what, I'm going to be entertained. I'm going to. I've got the season pass. Candy's yeah. in it. We're going. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Uh, you didn't need to be blown away by the trailer. It's the candy flicks out. Well, I guess we'll go to that. Yep. So let's let's talk about John Candy. He was born in Ontario on Halloween in 1950. So perfect. Halloween. Yeah. His dad died of heart disease at age 35. 
when John was only five. And that's something that haunted him forever. He, he was always kind of, you know, trying to address his weight issue, but not addressing it very well. Steve Martin is funny. Steve Martin and him were very close in real life, which I, I think mm. it comes across in the movie. Uh, but he said that in the beginning of filming Planes, Trains and Automobiles, and they didn't really know each other. They had met, but they didn't know each other going into that. And Candy moved all of this top level exercise equipment into his trailer and he never used any of the stuff <laughs> so <it's, laughs> but the, he he wanted to work he's like it. i mean I, I i get it i totally sure. get it i have best yeah. intentions mm-hmm. but sure i uh, the the irony of just what you said if you don't find amusing his last name's candy he was born on halloween his father's death haunted him like it's already Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Like, it is. It's already a good story. Yeah, it's a little on the nose, but sometimes life's like that. Yeah, I. I mean, I love it. I. I love stuff like that. He liked treats so much as a kid that people call them sweet tooth. Uh, he wanted to be a football player. He was an offensive lineman. Nobody could get around him, but he hurt his knee, so that didn't end up working out. Uh, so when he was in college was when he first tried theater and he loved it. He ended up growing to be 300 pounds, six foot three. He's a big man. He, he got some TV commercials and, and small gigs after college. He met Dan Aykroyd, who encouraged him to try out for Second City in 1972. And he got the job. And so they performed everywhere, Canada, United States, uh, his castmates called him Johnny Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a big drinker. He wasn't a lot of those guys. If you hear the stories about like your Bill Murray's or John Belushi, they would party and kind of get scary. And Candy would party and become more John Candy-ish. Yeah. <laughs> he the beast. Yeah, man. He would just have fun and chain smoke and cook. And apparently that was his thing. He would have his castmates over to party. And this was the legendary SC TV cast. Yeah. And you probably know the luminaries on there, right? Like Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, uh, Rick Moranis came on later, Harold Ramis. Well, him and Ramis were really tight, right? Yeah. Is that so? I know, well, You're probably going to get to this, but I know they're all in Toronto. They're all Mm -hmm. doing their thing. You hear the story of the elder statesman of SCTV that they moved to Chicago, then to New York. Um, Why wasn't John Candy part of that first jump into Saturday Night Live? I know he hosted it. Yeah, he hosted it. I'm not sure if he wanted it or where he fit in there. Uh, he did. He does have an interesting quote where he said, uh, a lot of Saturday Night Live was very abrasive, what I call bad boy humor. SCTV was never that way. It was too easy to go that route. You should be comfortable with the people in a picture or on a television show. You should care about them. Wow. Yeah, so everything that he did, I mean, I think it was naturally lovable, but a lot of it was just calculated. He's like the Daniel Day-Lewis of comedy. Like, he lived, (laughs) had to be the character. It was his ethos, you know? 
But he also, for as lovable as he was, it sounds like he was pretty confident. He would wear expensive suits and he rented limousines to go to auditions. I love this guy. <laughs> I'm telling you, these past couple of weeks with John Candy, I just love him more and more. He's so much fun. <laughs> he would he would have people over, he and his wife. He married his high school sweetheart. No, and he would have people would. over. Of course he did. He'd party with them all night and then he would just feed them snacks and then the meal would come at like 1, 2 a.m. <laughs> people were like, are you kidding me? And, uh, and Eugene Levy's talked about how he looks back on those nights as like some of the best nights of his who life. Was, who played his girlfriend um, in Uncle Buck? The redheaded from Kobolowski Tires. I can't think of her name. I I just pictured that that was his real wife. It it does seem to fit. She was in Kindergarten Cop. It's yes, Amy, Amy Madigan. Dan I told the you, man. I had it. Dan is quick on the draw. <laughs> uh, he went. Candy went to a party in Hollywood in '76, and he put Chevy Chase in a headlock for an hour and a half. Just walked around with them, jovial big guy. Put him in a headlock. I bet everybody at the party thanked them after. <laughs> right, that's what that's what made him so popular. Like, I like this guy. I owe this guy everything. He got that annoying guy out of the way. <laughs> he saw ran into Steven Spielberg at the party and told him, uh, "Hey, I like your movie about the fish." <laughs> and uh, and Spielberg liked him so much he offered him a role in the movie 1941 right on the spot. Wow. Yeah. So he had a, a little role in that, and then he also had a small cameo in uh, in Blues Brothers, the uh, Orange Whip. Oh, Orange, Orange Whip. Whip. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so really? that's. But I, I would say his breakout role was Dewey Oxberger in Stripes. Ox. That was yeah. That was probably his big first big role, right? I yeah. Mean, everything up to that, he was kind of small, under mm-hmm. five, but he'd steal the show. Right. I mean, right. if you mention Blues Brothers, if you just like say something about Blues Brothers to somebody, most of the people will do the Orange Whip, Orange Whip, three hundred whips. Like yeah, it, it's it's he kind of funny. Count. He yeah he he would he was a, a movie stealer, a scene stealer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he definitely made the most of it. And his his most famous scene from Stripes was obviously the mud wrestling scene when they all the other recruits go out to the strip club. He didn't want to do it. He was oh. fighting with uh, with Ivan Reitman and Howard Ramis. His old buddy was like one of the writers of it. And of course, they they won out. And uh, and then that was like one of the famous parts of of the movie. And they also had some fat jokes, which he never liked, but yeah, got to do what you got to do. Him and Harold Ramis. And it's now that makes more sense of what you said about his quote on comedy. I always wondered why they didn't go the same route as the rest of that group. The the rest of that crew kind of went Saturday night live, New York. And those guys kind of stayed in the Chicago lane and made it in LA, but from Chicago. It's interesting because if Candy was going to make that jump, I think he was really popular on SCTV. So it's likely that if he was going to make the jump, it probably would have been post Lorne Michaels and uh, that weird Don Allmeyer, Eddie Murphy <laughs> era. Yeah. 
which I mean, hey, maybe it would have worked, but I'm glad that there's more variety. And, and it needed to go the way it went, so we got what we got. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because he would have just been another person backing up Eddie Murphy otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. 83, he did National Lampoon's Vacation. That's when Chevy Chase took him hostage at Wally World. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good revenge, I think. (laughs) John Barley had him in the headlock (laughs) ball off camera. And uh, and John Hughes wrote that movie, and that's when they had first kind of connected with each other. That and, became that became and that was uh, everything. Yeah. Well. So so then eighty four splash. He was Tom Hanks's womanizing brother, which I think that John Candy as Tom Hanks's brother might be harder to believe than Daryl Hannah as a mermaid. <laughs> so I don't know in what world those two dudes are brothers. Yeah, that poor mother. Who was first? <laughs> <laughs> but you know i i guess but it is two guys on the short list of most likable ever that's right if henry winkler played their uh eldest brother we're talking about the three most likable people on the planet the sweetest family of all time <laughs> which ironically i heard henry winkler and tom hanks don't like each other i read that somewhere that's mind-blowing insane um, they like everybody except themselves it's kind of like you're on my corner i'm the nicest dude i don't need your shit yeah get your nice ass off of my street and it is a very nice ass by the way i meant that the way it sounds all right you're a looker but please my uh, i i told my neighbor earlier today that i'm recording this podcast and he said i never really liked john candy and my mind was so blown and i was personally hurt and then I mentioned planes, trains, and automobiles, and he told me he never really liked Steve Martin. And I was starting to get upset. And then I remember, wait a second, I remember about a year ago he told me he never really liked Tom Hanks. I'm like, well, that's never. the type of person. How? Wait. How? It's just a contrarian. I think that's all it is. And yeah. he's and he's a great guy, but maybe it's just, you all like them. Well, not me. Yeah, I don't get the hype. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about this Hanks guy just yet. We'll see. There was a period, uh, I, I'll admit this, there was a period in, in my life on two occasions where I tried to be that, the contrarian, and I felt horribly short. Is One was Steve Martin was going through the phase where he was like popping out a couple movies and they were very sentimental. Mm. And I that he wrote, and I remember going, I don't think he's as good as everyone says he is. And then he immediately won me over when I went and saw the movies. I was like, right. although they are good. And the <laughs> other one was when Robin Williams started doing the variants. I, I hate the Robin Williams inspirational speech. And what? And everything. And everything. Everything he does right around the end, he gives a very sentimental speech. They're not all winners. I'll, I, yeah. I'll agree with you there. And part of me is like, man, you just made me laugh for an hour and a half. Don't make me feel shit. Just be funny. <laughs> right. You can't decide <laughs> in the 11th hour that this is what the movie is. You, you need to keep that. Once you open me up whole. with laughter, don't try to like then steal my heart. It's like I already I'm with you. 
you don't have to give the speech that you're pleading insanity for your children. Like just. <laughs> right. The sentimentality doesn't have to be there. Yeah. That's that contrived. Me, you already opened me up and I cried because I was laughing. Now you're going to make me cry because of feeling bad. You're going to lose your family. Jesus Christ, Robin, don't be so selfish. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's a and prelude to some tears, to some tears that are going to be coming when we talk planes, trains. But I know. Yeah. Um, so after Splash, Candy bought a 10 acre country home outside of Toronto and an old tractor to regrade the lawn himself. And he later got four horses. Do you want to hear the names of the horses? Yes. Peaches, Cream. Uncle Buck and Harry Crumb. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah, I I want to ride Uncle Buck and Harry Crumb. <laughs> yeah, you do. Uh, <laughs> he was offered the Lewis Tully role in Ghostbusters, and he supposedly there's a lot of stories about what went wrong. He wanted to be like a big German guy, of course, big, but he wanted to be a German guy with a bunch of dogs. And but but the other story was he just didn't want to budge from the three hundred fifty thousand that he made for Splash, so it ended up going to Rick Moranis. Which and I I got no problem John with John Candy. I can't see him playing Rick Moranis' part because he did so so perfect, so perfect. And Vankman was supposed to be John Belushi, so obviously this could have been a very different movie. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 85, he co-wrote The Last Polka with Eugene Levy. Is it Levy? I think it's Levy, and I've been calling it Levy the whole time. Oh. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I'm sorry, Eugene. I'm a fan. I like what you do. Uh, and he had his first lead role in Summer Rental with, oh, with so director good. Carl Reiner. Oh, and so good. My father was an air traffic controller, and so when that movie came out, we all we went to it, and I remember going to the movie theater to see it. And I remember just in my head thinking, "This is nothing like my dad." <laughs> <laughs> it's a way different kind of movie. <laughs> my father would never let us go on a boat regatta <laughs> and race against some stuffed shirt asshole. <laughs> Did you like that movie? It was all right. I loved it. I mean, I, really? Yeah. So actually, um, my old roommate, Nick Novicki, went to high school with the girl, the little girl in the movie. She's from Orange, Connecticut. And every time he'd be like, yeah, I'm going back to Orange. And I'm like, if you see her, you got to tell her, can I go in the basement with Yoku? <laughs> Is she still acting? Uh, I think so. I think she's in L.A. now. I Good. mean, you know, or has been. I have no idea. Yeah, but he's like, tough. I went to school with her. I'm like, and it's such a, it's a ridiculous, feel good, laugh, movie. I mean, it's just. I mean, as a dad, I'm sure you had this too, where you're watching it and go, yeah, I, no, I would never be able to just go to a bar, get drunk every day, and then work on a boat when we we're on vacation. <laughs> I feel like I'd be dragged to a bunch of shit with the kids. I agree with that. And <laughs> I, I think to me, great outdoors felt more Ooh. true to life 
because that had so much of just your family vacation mm-hmm. BS that you put up with. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, and we so we can move it along. Brewster's Millions is Richard Pryor's so best good. friend. Apparently, Pryor kind of resented him a bit in real life. Because really? Candy would come in and he was this gregarious guy and he got to know everybody that worked on set. And Pryor's more of a dude of like, just go sit and wait. And when he started feeling like Candy was getting more love, he got a little bit pissy. It's well, I mean, that honest to God is an improv comic versus stand up comic in wow. whole because I mean, stand up comics just sit in isolation and it's all internal until mm-hmm. they get to turn it on. Where improv and sketch guys are just out and you know, they're living it, they're not internalizing it. So I, I, there probably would be resentment, you know, because it's like Richard Pryor's going, hold on, I'm going to do something really brilliant when it's my time. And Candy's just like, hey, so, well, you know. The, just cry, just having the whole set roaring with laughter yeah. while Pryor's trying to get in his head. Yeah. Why are you ruining this for me? <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, I, I've hung out a lot with both and I've done a lot of both. And I, I noticed a green room at a stand up comedy show is not as fun as a green room at an improv show. Improv people are uh, out ready to have the time of their lives where the stand up comics are going. I have to do the, the make these people have the time of their lives and they're just all internal and the sketch people are external. They're living the shit in your brain on the outside. So it's a... I would also add to your point about the green green room with a bunch of comics. A fun green room versus a dead green room has no correlation to how good the show is going to be. <laughs> a good green room has nothing to do with a good show. A dead green room has nothing to do with a good That's or bad show. It really... True. Yeah, that's not like you're not reading the vibe in that room isn't going to tell you shit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100% agree on that. Also in 85, (laughs) Candy was named one of the top 10 sexiest men alive by Playgirl magazine. Are you serious? Having friends that are the funniest people in the world, how much fun do you think all of his boys had with that? (laughs) I mean, it had to have been nonstop. I, but it does go to show you that, you know, there was always that saying that women are always after a guy with a good sense of humor and guys would go, yeah, bullshit, bullshit. This is kind of proof, you know, like Roseanne Barr is really funny. Nobody's voting her top 10 sexiest woman. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, you see, there's hope. There's yeah. hope for all of you out there. Yeah, but when people watch sitcoms and say it's bullshit because Kevin James can never get a girl like Leah Remini, yeah, he could. Of course he could. Yeah, he could. I'm living proof. It's true. That guy can get the hottie. (laughs) Respectfully, I'm living proof as well. (laughs) I love that you consider yourself fat. I I do. I I do. I've got my demons. My my goal weight is probably your worst. Your worst weight is my goal. (laughs) That's kind of you. So 86, he did Armed and Dangerous with Eugene Levy or Levy. He was like a 
binge eating badass type. Uh, he also had a cameo in Little Shop of Horrors that year. It's awesome. Which one did he play? I saw that on his movie bio. I don't remember him, but I also I haven't seen the movie. I don't remember I, the movie at all. It's been a long time. I remember it, how how awesome Steve Martin was in that movie. Yeah. And Bill Murray's cameo was fantastic. He was the guy that loved the pain. He like <laughs> he wanted the dentist to <laughs> Yeah, and, and Steve Martin was the dentist, right? Yes. Yes. And yeah, I don't remember. I remember it being like an amazing cast and like looking at the thing, I'm going, how is this not way more famous? I don't really I, remember much from I it. I like that movie. Rick Moranis was really good in that. <laughs> it was fun. It was yeah. fun and it was like very creepy. I want to show it to my girls and see if I can mess them up. <laughs> We're going to take... <laughs> there you go. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to get into John Candy's Killer Peak. So hold on. We'll be right back. All right. Thanks. We're back. Now we're going into the the man's peak, 1987. And I think we both agree that his most memorable movies were with John Hughes. Uh, also in 87, he had one with Mel Brooks. So when he was working with the best people, and he obviously he worked with Rob Reiner before that, and he was, you know, he, he worked with some noteworthy people. But uh, what is your favorite John Hughes movie? Well, the, the irony that John Candy and John Hughes look so much alike really yeah. is why I think he could write such great movies for him. But I, I gotta go uncle buck. Wow. I'm surprised. It's really hard. I planes, trains and automobiles is like one of the best movies I think ever made. Um, that movie, I just, I just rewatched it called due date with, yes. um, yeah. Zach Galifianakis is playing and John Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, Robert it's, Downey it's, Jr. is playing Steve Martin and it is a, I don't think they were trying to hide it, but it's a blatant ripoff of planes, trains and automobiles, but it yeah, was homage. Yeah. And, it, and it's two of my modern favorite modern actors in it. Couldn't hold a candle to the original. And I heard they're remaking Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Will Smith and Kevin Hart. It's not going to work. Neither you know, one of those are John Candy. Th this is my thing with it is go ahead and make a road trip movie. I'm yeah. happy to see a new road trip movie once every three to five years. And yes. I think that it's, it's a great template that planes, trains and automobiles deserves a credit for being the best and being maybe not the first, but the first to really do it right. Yeah. And, and knock it out of the park. But why does it have to be? Why ruin a, a brand? Yeah. Why ruin was, a brand? It was like the, the Ghostbusters movie, which oh. took a lot of shit. And to my thing, it was like, that was a, a lot of people got sexist about them doing that movie. And to me, it's like, I think it was sexist that they did the movie. It's like, yeah. well, you don't think that these great female comedic actors could carry a movie without it own. being like, you know, the Ghostbusters brand. Make it a ghost movie that isn't Ghostbusters. That's fine. They could do it. Like they yeah. kind of got ru it ruined it that it had to be the, Ghostbusters. The controversy leading up to the movie made it not as good. 
Yeah. I mean, and look, I, I, I absolutely, and if you listen to my podcast, we did an entire episode on him. I adore Kevin Meany to no end. But when they did Uncle Buck, the TV show, which is my favorite movie, they're going to do an Uncle Buck TV show. I said, I'm out. Even as a little kid, even as a kid who is obsessed with Uncle Buck, I said, I'm out. I didn't know who Kevin Meany was then. But even if they would have had John Candy do the Uncle Buck TV show, I'm not interested. I saw the movie. It was done right. It's over. Yeah. You no. know, <laughs> Uncle I, Buck doesn't need. I. It's almost the same way I feel most of the time about sequels. We yeah. did this movie. We did it right. We don't need another one. Especially comedy sequels. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it's just about finding that magic and knowing when it's time to leave. Yep. The it, to me the Mount Rushmore of John Hughes movies is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and The Breakfast Club. Mm. And well, any you order you want to put those in. Do you consider Home Alone a Hughes? Yes. Anything that he wrote, I put under the Hughes okay. brand. And uh, Home Alone's great. Uh, yeah. Home Alone's great, but those are on a whole other level entirely. I yeah. think that my number one has to be Planes Trains. Yeah, oh, it's, it's good. so good. And when you when you talked about them looking alike, you know, some things just in the research. I think that wow, part of the why they work together so well is that they're workaholics with boundless energy. They both marry their high school sweetheart. They're both chain smokers. They both have the same mindset when it comes to family comedy, that it's not always necessarily, you know, PG, but it is decent for lack yeah. of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. Decent's a perfect yeah. word for that. Not crude, but yeah. And and this is a little off topic, but I, I, the Rick Moranis, um, the Rick Moranis and Bob Seeger thing that happened, I think is part of that those guys world as well. They both had kids and said, yeah, I'm stepping away until they're old enough. Right. And, you know, like Rick Moranis quit show business. Bob Seeger quit touring. And they just said, I'm going to raise my kids. And when they're of the right age, I'll come back. And I think there's a, there's no shame in that. I think there's nothing but pride in that. That's something that's pretty amazing. I get that. But now that my kids have spent so much time at home from coronavirus, I'm like, I kind of want to go. To. Yeah. <laughs> can we do a movie? <laughs> Where can we film a movie? Can I go I to New Zealand? <laughs> I don't need Just get me out of the house for a little bit. In 87, Spaceballs came out. It was the Mel Brooks comedy. It disappointed a lot of people, but not kids that were our age. No. I don't think there's ever been a movie that had more jokes about balls in it. Yes. Uh, and so out of all of the movies that we've just named since we came back from the break, Spaceballs is my least favorite, mm -hmm. but still good. Had moments. Had <laughs> uh, moments. Yeah. What, what we said about John Candy, he'll always give you some moments. I mean, a Mel Brooks movie is obviously going to give you moments. I, the guy's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it was a, it was good. It just wasn't John Hughes good. 
Sure. And, and, I know and, and it wasn't, it wasn't sacrilegious peak, to say. Right, it, it wasn't peak Mel Brooks good. It wasn't Blazing Saddles. It wasn't History yeah. of the World. Uh, honestly, it wasn't even Robin Hood Men in Tights, but it was good. <laughs> yeah, I, it was. And, and John Candy, so lovable. And him and the, the maid made the movie. Yeah. Well, as you said, loaded cast. And on the poster, it read Mel Brooks, John Candy, Rick Moranis. So that's a major vote of confidence because to me, yeah. that's more of a Bill Pullman movie than, <laughs> than, than either of them. It, it made $38 million against a budget of $23 million, opened second to Dragnet. So many comedies used to come out. Yeah, they don't they don't do shit like that now. No, no. <laughs> nobody uh, wants to rest their their money on a comedy. So I rewatched this movie, and my biggest takeaway is Rick Moranis owns this movie, and he's so goddamn funny yeah. in this movie. He's easily the best part about it. Every scene with him, he killed me. Yeah. Oh, and. Uh, when the Mel Brooks cameo in it, when he pops out of the between the sheets, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and he has the can of air or whatever. <laughs> As a kid, I didn't understand why it was so funny, but I knew it was funny. <laughs> and then when I got older and watched it, I'm like, oh my god, that's really fucking funny. Yeah, Oops, sorry, I don't. This is beeping out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Candy plays Barf. He's a half man, half dog. Uh, in his first scene, he's dancing around and eating a bucket of dog food while uh, listening to Raise Your Hands by Bon Jovi. <laughs> and he and Lone Star, that's Bill Pullman, they're in a Winnebago flying through space with the bumper sticker that says, I love Uranus. I heart Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. That's, that's classic. Classic humor. It did make me wonder why I haven't seen I Heart Uranus. How did that sticker. not how did that not get like really big? I wonder if that became a thing. It it seems and, like it should have been. And the eighties were all about merch. Yeah. It's all about merch. I well, can't that was half Spencer's. the joke of the movie was about how they were gonna <laughs> merchandise this because it was a spoof of Star Wars that came out <laughs> ten years after the first Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. <laughs> planes trains and automobiles was released november 25th 1987 it was based on a true story of john hughes back when he was like a, a marketing guy he had a trip that was supposed to be a day trip and he got home five days later because his flight was redirected and it turned into a nightmare and he decided that i can dramatize this and exaggerate it and turn it into a movie so he worked on it for a while and he did a great job he did a great job turning it into a, into a movie. It was released the same weekend as Three Men and a Baby. As I said, five days after Teen Wolf 2. That was an important that, movie. That in was my a house. good movie. <laughs> it's not good, but I love me some Jason Bateman. Now, any, any movie where there's a teenager covered in hair spoke to me. <laughs> It was Why very... did we not know each other back then? We really could have connected. <laughs> you would have, dude. <laughs> the sad thing is, is this is exactly what I looked like in high school. Same, same size, same facial hair, same. 
every everything. Same facial hair. I got sent home from school usually twice a week to go shave. Did you go to like a Catholic school or something? No, it was the public school. Oh. They would send me home to shave because you weren't allowed to have facial hair. But like, I can grow a beard in an afternoon. <laughs> I rocked the goofy goatee, not the full around the the lips goatee, just the bottom part goatee. The the Shakespeare. Oh, it was so aggressive. It was big too. It went like beyond my (laughs) mouth. It was wide, a wide goatee. And once every few months I would shave it. And then everybody in my life would tell me, you look weird. You need to grow that goatee back. And now whenever I look at the pictures, like, how the fuck did they let me walk around with that? Why thing? did anybody not tell me to shave this thing off my face? And people were like, no, you got to have that goatee. You're looking smooth with that thing. We, we had a rule. You weren't allowed hair past your lip or mm. past your ear. So I just shaved here down. And then this stripe would connect to the mustache and then back over. No. So I looked like a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a crazy look. <laughs> I look like Lemmy from Motorhead at like <laughs> 14. Walking in. Yeah. And I never cut my hair. So it's just this lion's mane of uh, look like a mop. It, it was bad. So Teen Wolf was a major film for mm. me. That's I, I love Teen Wolf, especially the... <laughs> Original. How did he get rid of that facial hair? <laughs> I want to do that. <laughs> We're talking John Candy. I'm sorry. Somehow we diverted to Mark's facial hair of history. That's, that's a listen. You never know where things are going to go. <laughs> that's true. Planes, I, trains made forty nine and a half million against a budget of thirty million. I think a lot of that budget just went into all the filming expenses. Apparently this was just a marathon shoot. They cut, they had to cut from four and a half hours down to the 90 minutes. Hughes just wanted to collect more and more. Apparently the guy that drove the truck, the one that had the dog in it. Yeah. That actor who had maybe a line or two in the movie, he was able to put a down payment on his house down just based on them keeping him day after day, (laughs) paying him scale. You know, he also told all of his friends, everybody he knew, oh, my God, I got this huge part. Yeah. And this John Hughes movie with John Candy, Steve Martin. It's such a big part. I'm going to be on set for like a month. And everybody's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then they went and saw it, and they're like, you barely had a line. You're, yeah, you're, the, the dog character had a bigger role than you. The dog <laughs> in the back of your truck. <laughs> uh, for my money, greatest Thanksgiving movie ever, greatest yes. road trip movie ever. To me, it's also uh, Christmas. It's Christmas to me. How, or uh, Thanksgiving to Christmas. Strange Planes and Automobiles. Yeah, Holidays. Yeah, it's on the short list of best holiday movie ever. And one of the greatest buddy comedy movies ever. Oh, God, yeah. I I really do. I love it so much. And the movie's so... the the uh, the Kevin Bacon cameo where he doesn't even have any lines. Just him and Steve Martin racing for the cab in New York. <laughs> and then when when Steve Martin finally gets to a cab, he's trying to make his six o'clock flight. He pays the evil attorney seventy five dollars for the cab, and while they're exchanging money, John Candy jumps in it and drives away. Beautiful. Not even, even to be mean. Of course, I, I recently 
cut all my hair off from the quarantine and I have very curly hair if I don't do something to it. I cut all my hair off and I shaved when I was in Ohio and immediately I didn't even get out of the barbershop chair and everybody was like, oh my God, it's Dale Griffin. Because I had the curly hair, the big face, and my whole family just, that's why you're John Candy. My mom swears that even when I was in junior high school. You turn into Del Griffith? She said I was John Candy my whole life. And when I went to go like tell them I wanted to get into acting, they're like, well, you could do anything John Candy was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> This is what they call the this is what they call a market replacement. <laughs> Time my, for you to fill those shoes. No bullshit. My nickname even in high school was Uncle Buck. Really? They called me Uncle Buck in high school. That is such <laughs> I like I think it's a compliment, right? Well, when you're in high school and you think you're cool and you think like I'm trying to pick up chicks, you don't want to hear Uncle Buck. Yeah. Yeah, that's but true. Now looking back, I'm going, yeah, you know what? I was the big, happy, jovial guy. So well, now we're Uncle Buck's age. So we're like, yeah, I could, <laughs> I, I kind of do want to be yeah, a little me. bit of Uncle Buck. I'm Uncle Buck that kind of like has it together more than Uncle Buck did. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I do, but jury's, jury's out. <laughs> uh, I liked when, uh, when they're waiting for the plane. And Steve Martin's character, Neil, he sees Dell reading the book. He realizes it's him. And Dell's book, The Canadian Mounted, with the picture of the girl, <laughs> it kills me every time. <laughs> and when, when Neil confronts him about taking the cab, right off of the bat, you get who Dell is. They do such a good job of just introducing the character. He yeah. he didn't know. He didn't mean to offend him. Can I get you a hot dog and a beer? It's like, <laughs> oh, this guy's an idiot, but he means well. He's all right. <laughs> I, uh, the other scene in that, that just, I cannot stop laughing. Well, the, the mess around. Oh, my when gosh. When he's driving in the car doing the mess around. It was some of the best physical comedy that I've ever seen. Yep. Cause not he's lip syncing, then he's he's playing, <laughs> playing the, the trumpet. He's playing the trumpet and he's doing the piano and he's <laughs> all over. And it's so he has much a fun. cigarette dangling out. And <laughs> my mom laughed so hard during that scene. And this was like this was a test in my house if you were being funny. If you're funny, you could get my mom to laugh so loud that the dog starts barking. Oh, that's a great payoff. That, that scene, even to this day, right now, if I called my mom and just started blasting, do the mess around on my phone, she uh -huh. would start howling, laughing that the dead dog would start barking. <laughs> I'm I, telling you, it becomes we, that much funnier that he's got a sleeping passenger in the car just to be <laughs> it's one thing that if you're with your friend but you're with somebody passed out and it's the middle of the night and you're just having this party <laughs> and they keep cutting to his crotch and he's steering the car with his crotch and you'd see the car go, and you just go oh my god i've i've been in so many situations where 
the embarrassment of if something did happen would be of that ilk. I've, yeah. I've had shirts stuck. I've like tried to change shirts while I was driving to a gig, took it over, and then it got stuck. And I'm like, oh, shit, shit. And I'm like trying not to wreck the car. I don't but, know if it's just a, a specifically a big guy thing, but I can't think of any other movie that, that gets that moment where he's trying to take off his jacket and it gets stuck because – all winter long, I get in the car with the jacket, and then I'm driving, and I'm trying to shimmy <laughs> the jacket off. And I'm trying, it's like it, it kind of can get a little bit dangerous for a second. <laughs> the only thing that comes close is Lethal Weapon when he breaks his shoulder <laughs> to get the straight jacket yeah, off. Riggs wouldn't have a problem just pop the shoulder <laughs> out in that situation. <laughs> I like that everybody owes Dell a favor because he has sh- sold them shower curtain rings at some point. <laughs> <laughs> do you know do you know or ever have known who your shower curtain salesman oh is? well we love i mean larry is amazing so yeah we <laughs> i like that that neil is the most cynical guy in the world and everything that dell does he's ready to crush him for it he gets pissed off but one of the the great understated things in the movie is when whenever dell says oh no no he owes me a favor i sold him some shower curtain rings Neil never questions it. He's all right. (laughs) Sure. Makes sense. Yeah, that makes Makes sense. sense. When they, um, so Neil obviously hates him immediately. And then Neil loses his first class seat and he sat next to Dell. And right off the bat, as soon as the plane goes off, Dell decides he needs to take off his, uh, his shoes and socks. Oh, Oh, that feels good. Oh, God, I'm telling you. My dogs are barking today. Oh. (laughs) That feels better. That old man, the old man in the background. Yeah, the old man. Yeah, he's so perfect. Just the. And and Dell, not only takes off his shoes, then socks, and Neil's just horrified. Absolutely horrified. And then Dell starts airing out the socks. He helicopters it. (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. That feels good. My dogs are barking. (laughs) I love that. And then when the flight gets diverted because of the snow, he sees Dell still in the best mood that you could imagine, and and Neil asks if they think thinks that we're going to get out of here, and Dell says we'll have more luck playing pickup sticks with our with butt cheeks than we will of getting out of here tonight. <laughs> Dude, so tell me this: Is Del Griffith ultimately a good or a bad travel companion? Uh, he's a horrible travel companion, <laughs> but he means well in every step he takes. Right. It's, I guess I want to say he's good because traveling can be such a nightmare. I and mean, this is based on a true story for a reason because everything can go wrong. But yeah. His positivity is amazing. It's transcendent. So there's something to be said about and when you're a large person and you do the things that most people do, people really take it take offense to it or or get angry about it 
but a large person doing something that the average person would do pisses people off. Like the fact that he cleaned his clothes in the sink of the hotel. We've all done that when we were on the road too long because you don't want your stuff to smell like sweat. So you clean it. But when Steve Martin sees it and how grossed out he is, it really makes Dale look like an awful, awful (laughs) person. But at the same time, everybody else has done it before. If you've been, you know, if you're on the road for long periods of time and you run out of clean clothes, you wash them in the sink. Like it's, it's a thing. Yeah. But I mean, he's the type of guy that it wouldn't occur to him that that might bother somebody as uptight as Neil. And then also (laughs) accidentally spilled his beer all over the, uh, the double size bed that they have. <laughs> and Neil has to sleep in the side with the spilled beer on it. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, <mean. laughs> I I like the scene when they uh when their room got robbed, Neil had set over seven hundred dollars in his wallet, and then Dell swearing he didn't take anything. You can count it if there's a dollar more than two hundred sixty-three dollars in there. And then of course we find out that he got robbed too. So they had like a thousand dollars on them. It was just crazy to think about how that was in eighty seven before there were a lot of cash machines and stuff. That's yeah. like twenty three hundred dollars. You imagine us we stay in a hotel room between us we've got twenty three hundred dollars on us. Yeah, that that wouldn't happen. We'd have like a, a two tens and a, maybe if one of us was selling merch at the gig, we might have like two hundred dollars. I got a Barnes and Noble gift card. <laughs> <laughs> I got a Panera card that I got they, from my in laws for Easter. <laughs> when they go to the car rental, and the lady who's Mrs. Pool. On uh, the Hogan's family? I think of her as the secretary in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. Yeah. She is like the most Midwest woman to ever Ever. And she's there. And Neil just gives her the business on the car he wants. And then... By the way, this is a PG movie that has an R rating because there are 19 or 20 F-bombs in one minute. And it's all directed at this otherwise sweet woman that was just (laughs) annoying. And this apple pie Catholic church. Neil at the wrong moment. How can I help you? You can start by wiping that stupid fucking smile off your rosy fucking face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then he just launches into that's, it. it never that's stopped. him dipping his toe in, and yeah. then he gets angry. <laughs> He's great, and the greatest payoff in all of comedy history is. And what do you got to say? Oh, I guess you're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says, "Do you have your receipt?" Then you're fucked. <laughs> So, so cute and innocent. Yeah, it's great. And obviously, they're they're Neil and Dell going at each other. 
And even when they think that they're going to be separated, finally, they're getting on the train. It's like, oh, that was an experience. Okay, well, good luck with your life. And of course, the train breaks down. And by then, you love Dell enough that when Dell has that ridiculous trunk that he's traveling with, <laughs> and he's trying to pull it across the field by himself. And I don't know, just rewatching this recently, I'm yelling at Neil. Like, Neil, help How him with the trunk. You, help him. The- Come on, have come on, on, Neil. Come on. <laughs> of course he does. And when they're on the bus together, first of all, they're totally broke. And Dell starts slinging shower curtains as jewelry, or the shower curtain rings as jewelry. <laughs> yeah. And you get to see how good of a salesman he is. I'm so grateful that they didn't cut that scene. I know uh, there's a lot of cuts. It. It, I think you have to see that he is good at something. Yeah. Because the the, and I know I was making fun of Robin Williams earlier for having the heartstring speech, but when he gives that speech about what is really going on with him, and that if you didn't know he was any good at anything, you would just see him as this loser. But then when he does the speech, and you know he's a good salesman, and you know the history, it's like. It really affects guess, the way yeah. you feel about them, and then I don't know if you uh, if that is that one of the. Uh, oh yeah, we'll 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 get there. We'll get to that. We okay. need to, to end on it, but after <laughs> after Neil tells off the uh, the uh, the car rental booking, and he's trying to get a cab, and he ends up getting into it with the uh, with the cab dispense dispatcher. And he pisses that guy off and he ends up kind of getting his ass kicked by that guy. <laughs> and Dell rescues him. And then they're driving around together. I love Dell when he's <laughs> addressing it. Are you all right? I've never seen a guy get picked up by his testicles before. Lucky thing for you, that cop passed by when he did. Otherwise, you'd be lifting up your shit. <laughs> Steve Martin's face just says it all in that scene. Yeah. <laughs> Picked up by his testicles. <laughs> oh man. I like I like that the scenes, a lot of them they go on an extra minute to or, or at least a little extra 20, 30 seconds to give you the feel of like this is you gotta let those scenes breathe because it's a road trip and that's how those yeah. are. You know, yeah, a, a lesser director would have said cut and they yeah. let him go for a little bit more. But it's so an, they, important that it feels lived in, you know, that we're yeah. kind of on the trip with them. <laughs> I so Neil gives Dell so much shit, and maybe my favorite part of the movie, not my favorite part, but one of the best laughs of the movie is when Dell finally comes back at him and tells him when Dell finally tells Neil what bothers him. him. What do I do that bothers him? Well, there's curious. lots of things. Uh, name one. Why well, don't you name there's one? There's quite a few things. You want me to name one? Yeah, fine, man. You play with your balls a lot. Oh. Do not play with my balls. <laughs> Larry Bird doesn't do as much ball handling in one night as you do in an hour. Are you trying to start a fight? No, I'm simply stating a fact, that's all. You fidget with your nuts a lot. You know what would make me happy? 
Have a couple balls and an extra set of fingers. <laughs> <laughs> His laugh is the greatest thing on the planet. <laughs> when somebody rips on you and then starts cracking themselves up. I have two older brothers and that is when they really cut me. If they would say something shitting on me and then just start laughing at their own joke. <laughs> it really sent me to that place. <laughs> you yeah. play with your balls a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. As you said, when Neil realizes the truth about Dell, it, it gets me right in the heart every time. Yeah. It, it, it's a killer. It's, <laughs> it's very emotional. And then, of course, he invites Dell over for Thanksgiving dinner at the end. And the movie ends with Neil making out with his wife in front of his in-laws and his widow, his widower friend. <laughs> it seems like a weird choice. <laughs> it's like, oh, I just learned you lost your wife. Well, here's mine. <laughs> but. All right, fine. Next movie. Obviously, we're not going to be talking about every movie as long as Planes, Trains, but that's just yeah, too special. But, but Great Outdoors came out June 17th, 1988, written by John Hughes. It was directed by Howard Deutsch. Deutsch? Deutsch? I don't know. To me, it's a John <laughs> Hughes movie. I'm sorry. Yeah. It made $43.4 million, a budget $24 million. Such and to me, this is... Dan Aykroyd and John Candy throwing 120 miles per hour against each other, yeah. watered down by family gags and the most tedious teenage romance in maybe movie history. The Buck <laughs> and Cammy stuff, oh my God, it's terrible. It's so bad. His son in the movie's Buck. And just oh, the, yeah. yeah, and the townie girl. And it's just, I don't know why they like each other. I don't know why there's any stakes in it. I just want to go back to Chet and Roman pissing each other off. Because that <laughs> stuff is just so inspired. I remember as a kid, whenever you'd watch the movie and then there would be the romantic uh, boyfriend, girlfriend crap. And I'd just be like, I just, I don't care. Yeah, let, oh. I'm going to go get a snack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. they we're going to watch this teenage love story I, that I give no shits about. None. Yeah. But the movie is well done. The opening scene, I feel like these movies, they really establish it well. They're, it's, they're, they're driving through the woods and you get that it's a family vacation. They got the station wagon. It's packed to the gills. They're singing yakety yak. And everyone's <laughs> taking their own verse. And even the teenager, he wants to be too cool to sing, but he's not unhappy to be there. So you're like, all right, I yeah. like this family. They're good, wholesome, happy people. And then you've got Roman Craig rolling up in his Beamer and just a totally different vibe in the car. And he's they're surprising him. And he goes, Chet's going to shit a solid gold brick. What a great surprise. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's got his Chicago accent on so thick. <laughs> I feel like I really knew, like, you know, guys like Chet and Roman. I was friends with Romans in college, and then I didn't stay in touch with them. But, like, the rich guys that have the answer to everything and – they're going to talk circles around had, everyone. Never had that friend. No? No. I, I, I was also 
more of a townie than a uh, college guy. But yeah, if you go to a business school, you meet Romans. <laughs> I I've realized over the course of doing this podcast that I'm such a bigger Dan Aykroyd fan than I ever realized. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's amazing in this movie. When I, I was watching a tribute to John Candy thing and Dan Aykroyd started talking and I realized how important he was in so many things. He he was never the shining star. He was always the solid foundation guy. Right. He he never had his movie where he did it alone. Yeah. But trading places, he more than carried his weight. Uh, yeah. He was great in Ghostbusters. I I did a John Cusack episode, and it's definitely a Cusack movie and not a Dan Aykroyd movie. But Gross Point Blank, he's really yes. good in that movie. I I enjoy that movie a lot. And Great Outdoors might be Aykroyd's finest moment. He's so funny, especially the first twenty minutes or so. Yeah, oh, yeah. I gotta rewatch that movie. Take a good look. I'll tell you what I see when I look out there. If you want to know, hey, yeah, I'm curious. I see the underdeveloped resources of northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. I see a syndicated development consortium exploiting over a billion and a half dollars in forest products. I see a paper mill, and if the strategic metals are there, a mining operation. A greenbelt between the condos on the lake and a waste management facility, focusing on the newest rage in toxic waste, medical refuse, infected bandages, body parts, IV tubing, contaminated glassware, entrails, syringes, fluid, blood, low-grade radioactive waste, all safely contained, sunken in the lake, and sealed for centuries. Now, I ask you, what do you see? I I just see uh, see trees. Well, no one ever accused you of having the grand vision. Nope. Maybe it's all for the best. While the ambitious scramble for wealth and power, the Chet Ripley's of the world are just able to lay back and casually stroll along life's path. I mean that as a compliment. Oh, thanks. The rest of us are all probably going to die of heart attacks and strokes long before you. <laughs> I hope so. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I hope so. That's great. Oh, yeah. That, that's that uncomfortable, like when you realize that you're just a, a good person and the people you are with are fucking vampires. Right. Well, he's got the thing where there's a part from that's impressed. And it's like, wow, I guess this is the way successful people think. I've got college friends that do really well that I feel like would deliver that same kind of monologue. And I'd be like, I, I like looking at lakes and trees. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> like, God. I don't yeah. know, man. I'm just relaxing. Yeah, that's I. That, that, that is the, like the most uncomfortable moment when you realize, and I got to spend how long with you? <laughs> Right. And that's the other thing you see. He just showed up to to surprise you that like, I'm going to be staying with you for a week and speaking condescendingly to you the whole time and reminding you that I'm better than you and smarter than you. <laughs> so this, this one, after Chet decides to spring a scary story on his family about a bear uh, that is still running around these woods. Oh, Baldy. What's the name of the bear? The, uh, oh, I forget. The, the bald headed, he took the top of his. <laughs> and, uh, and Roman listens in to Chet explaining to his kid why he doesn't need to be afraid. And Roman is taking notes, trying to figure out how to be a good dad. So he walks into his <laughs> twin daughter's room, and this is how he handles it. 
Good evening. How's it going? Listen, girls, uh, as your father, I feel it incumbent upon me to set the record straight on the validity of the tale which Uncle Chet shared with us this evening. I know that a terrifying story like that coming from the mouth of a recognized authority figure could be traumatizing for kids like yourselves. I know that because I had a similar experience with my Uncle Roy in a story he used to tell about a family that went into the woods and was attacked by a band of escaped army psychiatric patients who'd been subjected to violent, hellish, torturous behavior modification experiments. Seems they escaped from the metal boxes the army kept them in, found this family in the woods, fell upon them, slaughtered them and ate them. Oh, now that story... He gave me nightmares not to be believed, so I don't want Uncle Chet's bear story to upset you in the same way. So I'm here to say that there actually is no bear, and that all of what Uncle Chet was saying was just a yarn, spinning for our entertainment, and even if there were a bear out there, I'm in the house to protect you. So, um, no more thinking about bears, all right? No more thinking about unpleasant things. We're going to close our eyes and dream about nice things, about cuddly, soft, fluffy things, okay? Super. Good night. Sleep tight. He casually told him <laughs> the scariest story that's ever been told. <laughs> The government couldn't keep these lunatics in steel boxes. Found a family, fell upon them. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Oh, fantastic. His wife's played by Annette Benning. This is her first movie, and she's fantastic in it. Obviously, she was a Broadway actress and she just nailed the shitty rich wife her laugh in the movie is hilarious just the obnoxious entitled laugh that she had (laughs) i uh i love it and this is the movie i learned some things this is the movie where i learned that hot dogs are made out of lips and assholes i think that was a big takeaway that was the what did we learn in this movie moment and the other thing i learned is that um bears after getting a taste of humid blood, become ravenous for it. Mm. That was something that Chet told the kids. I don't think it's true. I don't think that the lips and assholes thing is true either. I do. I do. <laughs> I still, I'll still eat it. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, this isn't Candy being hilarious. He's great in the movie, but he's the straight man. And I feel for him so yeah. many times, the jet boat versus pontoon boat thing. That's what he just wants to cruise around the lake in comfort while while Chet while uh while Roman wants to get the jet boat and his kids are like, sorry, dad. Like, oh man. But both those dudes are so real because they're like our age. And yeah. Chet is the guy who's got a teenage son because he married somebody and had kids when he was like 23 or something. And Roman is just the traitor. Yeah, he was the soul to soul. I uh, I learned in doing some research that people can actually eat ninety six ounces of uh, of steak. I looked it up. And mountain oysters. The Roman was a coffee boy that had lost his seat on the exchange for two years, and he somehow had kept that a secret. Two years. 
that's a wild thing to be able to keep from your family for two years. <laughs> How much did he make? I don't know. Then he'd be able to hold that. A lot was confusing about that because he still, they had, they dressed the way they did and he's driving around in that car and he's got the Rolex. And then he comes clean after borrowing $25,000 from his brother-in-law, which by the way, that's like 55 grand or something in today's money. That's a oh, lot wow. of money that he just, that he borrowed. And then he came clean and he let his family know that he hasn't been re- making a significant income in a long time. And then at the end of the movie, uh, Chet finds out that Roman Craig and his family are going to be staying with them for a while till they get on their feet. It's like, wait a second. I thought they have a house. <laughs> like they weren't coming from a hotel. Nobody else in their house. It didn't really make that much sense. It was, it was very, uh, even a parent as a kid that like the way he was so condescending and so arrogant that it was like, there was something in the back of your head going, he lost everything. Yeah. And he's up to his debt and eyeballs. He tried to lie as long as he could. And then he finally had the breakdown. I liked that his wife barely flinched about him. It wasn't even about her reaction. To losing yeah. the money, she just she just had to get over that quietly. That's not what the movie was about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, she's under his thumb because he just controls everything. He's so controlling. Yeah, yeah, I like him. <laughs> okay, Uncle Buck, August sixteenth, oh, eighty nine. To me, probably Candy's definitive role. Because all of his other big movies, it's him and somebody else. It's a, He carries this movie. This is yeah. a John Candy start to finish. The way he treats and talks to the kids is so realistic mm-hmm. compared to any movie you watch where there's an actor with kids. Like uh, Most people are either condescending to their kids, they talk down to them to be cute, or they like... He talked to the youngest, the little girl, Maisie, Mm -hmm. the same way he talked to the oldest daughter. There was no like, and you're my little girl and I'm going to. It was like he was how real people are with kids. And that's the way kids will respect you if you if you show them respect the way he did. And that's why he was such a real character. I remember I saw that movie with my dad who doesn't have, you know, he doesn't love comedy movies, never has. And he came out of that just remembering the cool uncle that he had and loving the character and loving the movie. And it's just something (laughs) that's, it's very timeless thing. My kids love that movie. Oh, I'm trying so hard to get mine to watch it. I think this is going to be the year. Yeah. You got to get the right timing on it. It's yeah. We I tried way too early. I tried to get them in the Ghostbusters. I tried to get them in the Uncle Buck. I tried. It's like no, they gotta. Yeah, you don't want to. You can't do it too early. It'll because then they'll it'll spoil them on it, and they'll already decide they didn't like it. So then when you try to bring it back, they yeah. will watch it. I tell you what, you know who's great in that movie is Macaulay Culkin. Yes, that's the closest thing he had. That's the closest thing Candy had to a sparring partner in that movie. He's the the greatest child actor ever, Colkin. Yeah, and he's so funny in that flick. Oh, when he's questioning him, 
uh, let's talk Macaulay, but then I want to yeah, tell see you episode two of Peaks, everybody, about Macaulay yeah. Culkin. I, I let's talk a little Macaulay, but I, my favorite scene in that movie might be when the drunk clown shows up. Well, the two things that I wanted to happen after I saw this movie was I wanted pancakes the size that Uncle Buck made. Yeah. For the kids, I couldn't for- even get it through the door. <laughs> you should see the toast. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted pancakes that big, and I wanted to see a grown man punch a clown in the face. <laughs> <laughs> we joke around whenever my brother is hungover that he is that guy. I got these two bros. I know. <laughs> When he comes up, he just and his nose is all flat on one side. <laughs> yeah, the, the guy couldn't even ring the doorbell. <laughs> Whoever did the sound fully on it was brilliant because when he hits the button, it's like it sounds like a rock hitting it, like just like and then he finally hits the doorbell. <laughs> Apparently Candy did a lot of kind of rewriting in the movie that they were going to make the character darker. And he decided like, no, we need to make this guy nice and, you know, a people pleaser. And and that's who the guy is. He wants to pay for things when the mom tries to give him money. He's like, no, I got it. And then it just comes out, no, actually, actually, I'm going to need some checks. If you could just give me some checks. And just he wants the family to love him so yeah. badly. And when he's looking through the photo album of his brother's wedding, and he sees the picture that's folded back to cut him out from the photo album. You feel it in your heart for him. You're like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. Oh, and and I, uh, I, that scene particularly, and he's drinking with the dog, and he's down and seeing the success his brother had, and you see him kind of realizing that it's like, oh, can't believe he didn't tell me about this or yeah. you know whatever when he's with the dog he goes uh he goes people used to say oh bucky got it made yeah. <laughs> no wife no job no desk thing is nobody says that anymore <laughs> it's all gonna change tomorrow we're gonna win some big dough big time dough serious dough he's pouring the dog beer you want some pretzels <laughs> <laughs> but you really start feeling for him yeah. that it's like he sees that his brother's living this great life and that he's trying to like maybe I made some bad decisions. Like he's having the that real moment wrestling with himself and you really feel for him. And you really I mean when Marcy from across Marcy from across the street. Marcy Dahlgren Frost. Yeah. I get complimented on the hyphen. I didn't want to lose the frost. Laurie Metcalf in that movie, I it's so uncomfortable. I like her as an actress. That character is terrible. I feel like she did it so well. Hey, she might have done well. So they needed to look at at that. Maybe it played well in the theater. I don't really remember, but rewatching, I'm like, yo, this they need to turn this character down. This is insane. (laughs) <laughs> she's the, the the complete lunatic across the street that i bet 
they never talked to the family doesn't know her but she wanted the nib and find out what was going on and she squeezed her way in and then she immediately falls in love with buck and gets him to to slow dance with her somehow i don't understand how he's that stuck happened. in yeah and he's stuck in this like i don't know how to get rid of this woman yeah and he just it's like the worst case scenario happens at the worst time like that's right. like you just see it piling on him and then when he gets busted it, it's over you know what i mean it's like and and you just feel for him you mm-hmm. just feel because you know he's a good person trying to do a good thing I love when he goes to Macy's school to talk to the principal. He was summoned there. He walks in smoking a stogie. He realizes he already walked down one hallway and he's holding the stogie and he realizes like, oh, I better toss this. And then he goes to speak to the principal Principal. who has a gigantic wart on her face and it's not that slick about it. I'm Anita Horgarth. Fuck melanoma. Molly Russell's wart. Not her wart. Not her wart. I'm I'm the wart. She's my tumor. My my growth. My uh, my pimple. I'm Uncle Wart. Just old Buck Wart Russell. That's what they call me. Or uh, melanoma head. They'll call me that. Melanoma head's coming. I'm sorry. Uncle Maisie Russell's uncle. I'm her uncle. <laughs> It's so good. And then later he <laughs> he yells at her for calling calling his You're niece a, a silly heart and a dreamer that doesn't take her academic career seriously. I always wanted an Uncle Buck to stand up for me to mean teachers. Yeah. Uh, tell me now, you walk into your daughter's school and as you're walking through, you don't hear that drum in your head. I will next time. (laughs) I remember going, I had to go do, uh, it was a gig and it was at a, a, it wasn't even junior high school. It was a grade school. And I remember walking in and seeing the little tiny toilets and the thing and just thinking like, oh, this is, I'm Uncle Buck walking through here. The little urinals are crazy. Those things are nuts. You forget those things exist unless you have to like take a leak at an elementary school. I can't. By the way, we have elementary school age kids for whatever anybody wants to project about what's going on. That's why I know. (laughs) The other thing that I I can't believe they didn't do the gag with making them sit in a little chair. Oh, you know what? I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they didn't. Yeah, that's too cheap. Yeah, yeah. Candy deserves better. You know what was weird in that movie? A couple of things. The subplot with Bug. He's got the niece that's seeing a guy named Bug who rubs Uncle Buck the wrong way. And he's kind of insane to that creepy boyfriend character. And at the end, he has him tied up in the trunk and he's hitting golf balls at him. He's threatening to kill him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And he just starts wagging off. And the, the kids, yeah, my dad's a lawyer. Your ass is grass, man. I'm going to sue you. It's like, for sure, the kid sucks. But I think that Buck took it way too far. What is... 
there's part of me that I'm agreeing with you right now, but there's also part of me that's like what we just talked about with the great outdoors and the long ass uh, teenage romance bullshit. This was the payoff for every kid in the theater who hates that part of the movie. Yeah. We hate that part of the movie and we get to watch Buck come in with a drill, go into the door Go to pull this kid out and beat the shit out of him. It's the wrong kid in complete buck fashion. But then when he does find him, he allows his niece to have the ultimate payback. No, it was the kid, but he was with another girl. Oh, yeah, it was the, yeah. But then he finds his niece. Buck's superpower is finding things. Because this is the age before cell phones. First, he found her earlier in the movie. They're having some campfire thing in the woods where they're partying. Buck drives straight over there. I don't know how he knew that. He knew where the party was. Do you you think that's where Buck grew up? I don't think so, because they're from Indianapolis, remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's part of why she's pissed off, because they moved from Indianapolis. And then Buck is driving home. He's He leaves the party and then go picks her up. She's walking home by herself in the middle of the night. Buck just has a sense for things. Yeah. He, knows, he knows where everybody is all the time. I, I also, I, I liked that. I'm sorry for interrupting, but, nope. but I like that uh, he's got the crisis of consciousness when he's got the horse race that's fixed and he's going to take the kids to the horse oh race. So and touching. He, it's so touching. But in this last rewatch, I thought, is it really that bad to take the kids to a horse track? Is it that bad? He already took them to the creepiest bowling alley that I've ever seen in my life. With uh, Pal. Yes, with Pal, who was hitting on on the knees. <laughs> and also, when he decides he needs to find his niece and his girlfriend is coming over, he left before she got there. So he leaves the kids home by themselves. He makes a lot of bad guardian decisions. As a little kid, as a little kid... After this movie and then, you know, time passes and Home Alone came out. I swear to God, I had a flashback that when they opened the mail slot and you see the two guys, that it was Harry and Marv from Home Alone. It wasn't. I went and looked. But I swear to God, in that moment, that when, I was, of it. when I was watching Home Alone, I go, those were the guys from Uncle Buck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would have been it would have been a fun callback if they were all in that universe. Uh, his daughter has said that uh, that he was a lot like Buck, that that was the closest to him, the way yeah, that uh, she saw, which I, I can certainly see that. Now, this is from an Internet search. I don't know how real this is, but do you want to hear some actors that were considered for the role of Buck? Yes. It's a long list. Uh, Danny DeVito. Tom Cruise. No, no. no. Cruise is insane, and I doubt that's There's even real. Zero chance. That yeah, I don't think that's real. real. Robin Williams. That I could possibly. Tom Hanks. Jack... I could see that. It'd be yeah. a different movie. Jack Nicholson. No. No. Travolta. I could see them no. doing it, but it not being good. It'd be horrible. He would be gangster, Uncle Buck. <laughs> Michael Keaton. That might have been Possibly. all right. George Went would have yes. been like a lesser version of the candy. 
It, they would have had to rewrite a lot of the cutting stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chevy Chase. Oof. That would have been bad. Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I can see. Yeah. And John Goodman. That would be the the that one would be like, yeah, if they remade it and they did it with John Goodman, just right. like for fun, I would go. Yeah, that works. But if it was Goodman at the time, I guess Laurie Metcalf would have to be punted. You yeah, can't have the whole cast of uh, Roseanne. Roseanne showing up. You can't have his sister-in-law showing up dating on him. <laughs> well, then we'd have to change uh, Amy Madigan to Roseanne. Oh my gosh! Now you're talking. Back. So after this movie, who's Harry Crumb? We don't need to talk about it. But the tagline: "Nerves of steel, body of iron, brain of stone." And yeah, the movie was about as funny as the tagline. <laughs> not, not the greatest. I don't love that flick. So yeah. should, let's get into some categories. Okay. What was his greatest moment? Greatest moment? I'm going to go. It has to be Uncle Buck. No, you know what? Oh, man. I'm going to go Uncle Buck. When he... When the... Uh, when... Man... Serious or comedy? Up to you, my man. Should I say mine? Yeah. Well, I'm going to say from a macro standpoint, planes, trains, and automobiles. I think that he deserved an Oscar nomination. I looked up who was nominated for that year. Morgan Freeman and Street Smart. Albert Brooks, Broadcast News. This is for Best Supporting Mm -hmm. Actor. Denzel Washington, Cry Freedom. Vincent Gardenia, Moonstruck, and the winner was Sean Connery for The Untouchables. Now, Sean Connery was great. Yeah, but it should have been Candy. Candy should have at least been nominated. The character of Del Griffith has lived on, outshined any of these roles. Yeah. You know, comedies never get the respect they should, but... I thought that what he brought to the screen was absolutely incredible in that movie. And I I guess something that we didn't talk about, but, but among his best moments, probably not his greatest moment from the movie, but when they're on the bus is really, I feel like when he kicks it up to another level of, I love this guy because nobody likes to be on a bus and he's sitting there and he sees the two people making out and he nudges his book. He's like, hey, check it out. And then the people catch, they catch Neil looking at you got busted. (laughs) (laughs) Just having so much fun. And then the next thing you know, he's leading a sing-along he crushes it with the song and then he tells neil to sing one and neil starts enthusiastically singing a song and nobody knows the song (laughs) have you ever had that have you ever like requested the wrong song at a piano bar and like i feel like it was my whole life (laughs) i feel like that's that right there sums up 
my entire life of like, I'm the guy who requests the wrong song. I think I have great taste in music. When my friends are in my car, they can't believe how eclectic my my thing is. But when it's time to pull the trigger. At the jukebox or piano bar. It's such a bad feeling. Yeah. And, and then, and then Dell saves him by singing the Flintstones and everybody joins in and Neil feels so (laughs) stupid. I love that. I, I, now that you're mentioning it, it's going to be planes, trains and automobiles. And it's the mess around scene. It's so good. It's you just get what being on the road is, you know? And, uh, I also like when they get pulled over by the cop. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm going to go the mess around. The mess around, nobody, I can't imagine any other actor doing it and it being as funny as it is in John Candy's hands. Yeah. You know, and and that's just the intangible thing about comedy that you can explain it the way we've explained it. But if you see him do it and just how funny his face is with that cigarette leaning out of his mouth while he's playing the fake <laughs> piano and the, and the trumpet he's, while he's driving. He's, he's selling it so hard. He's so <laughs> into it. Yeah, like that's a that's an actual lesson for actors to watch that and be like, you act like nobody's watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, really he, have fun. Yeah, he really thinks that's him playing the piano. Mm-hmm. It is. <laughs> uh, biggest flex. To me, he wasn't a flexer. He knew his lane. This is a this is a lame flex. I mean, not. It's it's not uh, being a dick and flexing, but did you know he did Sesame Street? Follow that bird. I think not that was the Sesame Street movie that he was in, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you, an episode. No, I didn't know that. And and he played him and Eugene Levy's uh, weird European characters that were like the ambiguous gay couple. Okay. And he went to see Oscar the Grouch to teach him how to play the clarinet. If you know anything about this character that he plays, he dresses like Balky from Perfect Strangers. <laughs> and he's like ambiguously gay foreign guy. And he's on Sesame Street doing this character that I seen on SCTV and on Letterman, who is very edgy, but he's on Sesame Street doing that character. It's the equivalent of having Borat on Sesame Street. You know what I mean? It's like, if you know where this character comes from, it would not be appropriate. But he did it, and he pulled it off, and it crushed. He's so good. (laughs) You know, and something that I, I maybe got this impression from speaking to, like, my neighbor, the one guy in this whole greater Philadelphia region that might be disrespectful about John Candy. But I I think sometimes that if you're in a a family movie or something, or if you're a clean comedian, people might say, oh, he's not really pushing boundaries. I like people that do something more original. It's like, yo, what he did was very original. You know, this guy was one of a kind. Like there's not other John Candys out there just because he wasn't profane and crude. Doesn't like that doesn't mean the people have captured what he's been able to capture. Well, and how you know, funny he, is it that he can 
get the laughs that he can get without it. Right. And and I I respect the hell out of comics that are filthy. One of the funniest lines that I ever remember saying was it was after a show and somebody said, Oh, I'm so glad you didn't swear during the show. Anyone can be funny swearing. And I'm like, okay, then do it. Yeah. Show me. I don't think it's that easy to be funny and filthy. No, I don't think it's that easy to be clean and filthy. Can you? That's the hard part. And John Candy was a very wholesome guy who could make the toughest people laugh. Right. And as I said before, I mean, Planes, Trains and Automobiles really is another PG movie that that they were bold enough. And this would never happen today. They were bold enough to change their PG rating for an otherwise family movie because they said that one minute of Steve Martin saying fuck like 30 times is worth it. <laughs> it's that funny. It's so worth it. <laughs> People forget that, like, you know, out of all this stuff that is important, I get it, the whole, like, diversity and changing things up. The one thing people forget is it's got to be funny. Yeah. It's got to be funny. And that scene with Steve Martin, because he was so clean cut the whole movie up to that point, and you see him break and say fuck 30 sometimes. Because he was so fucked over and angry. (laughs) It works. It works. If he was swearing every other word the whole time, that scene would have been boring. Mm -hmm. And it it was, it's part of the reason the scene that I played when, um, when Dell tells Neil, you fidget with your nuts a lot. That works because this is a guy who doesn't like to give people a hard time, but he finally had to be like, dude, I'm sorry, but you play with your balls all the time. (laughs) I love it. Do you think that what he did can be replicated? I know we kind of talked about this before, but do you think it could be done again today? So I think there are actors that can have his charisma I think there are people that can get the laughs he got. But the combination, that chemistry that he had specifically, I don't see it being done again. I I don't see... I think the type, the way that movies are made is just makes it impossible. The fact that, that now those movies are on Netflix just means that it's not going to resonate the same way because I think... There'll always be a fan actor. Right, but I and and but I don't think that they another John Candy. Yeah, and and I I think that that now it's more targeted. There are yeah. movies made for teenagers and for grownups and for kids, and it's just he planes, really trains, and automobiles. Your grandma can go, and you can take your kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like everyone can go see this movie, and they're all gonna laugh. What uh, what were his bounce back moments to you? So um, do you remember when he did the movie Only the Lonely? Love Only the Lonely. So that is past his peak that yes. we picked. Uh-huh. I told my wife today we were talking about John Candy and I said, I remember he took a run at doing serious movies playing more serious, less comedy. And only the lonely, I think was his first trade 
to that. Well, I that, think that was like, I forget if that was before or after JFK, JFK. but they're and both I, 91. I think he was going to take a stab at being considered a serious actor for the exact reason you mentioned earlier that the Academy overlooked him. And I think he was in the middle of a bounce back to be taken serious as well. He was going to do his Robin Williams thing mm-hmm. where he was, and, um, and what's his name? Well, Jim Carrey did it where the comedian wants to be taken serious, but then go back to comedy or not. Sure. Yeah. You can do your but, Truman show and, and you can do your man on the moon and then come back and, and do, you know, comedies after that. I think candy was, had that skill set. <laughs> And had the interest in different things that that he could have gone several directions. Yeah. I think he was in the middle of his bounce back when he passed. He also started directing. He directed his first movie and I didn't see it or anything, but I'm I'm sure he was going to be a good director because that guy has no pun, no pun intended on it, but that guy had a really great gut. Yeah. No, well, he, he, he had the instincts for all of his characters. I think that yeah. they gave Candy a lot of room to operate, and he created. I think I th- you you are an actor, and I'm not. But wouldn't you say that any significant role has a part of the actor in that role? It's it's yeah. not just what's on the page. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he was really talented on a technical level as well as a, a natural ability. And I think he would have been an awesome director. And I think he could have done serious roles. He certainly, from what I've read, would have it would have been a great set to be on with him as a director. Because everyone around wow. him always was having a good time. And I yeah. think that that's probably really important, <laughs> you know, from that <laughs> kind of, you know, high pressure situation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. He bought the Toronto Argonauts in 1991. It's a Canadian football team, and he grew up loving them. And who are the other two? He, there were three guys who owned them. They ended up selling it without his knowledge, and he found out and was like so pissed. They they oh. and uh, yes, but but he loved owning the team. And I saw this hilarious clip from one of his players talking about how, you know, travel, any time they would travel, the other team gets booed like crazy. That's just what happens in football. But John Candy would be there and he'd come out and wave and everyone would lose their minds. I <laughs> just loved Ackroyd had a funny line about it about how uh, Candy would get all of his friends to go out to see the Argonauts play. And Ackroyd's in the box, and he's he sees Candy go out onto the field, and everybody lose their mind. And Ackroyd says, he did it. He's Johnny Toronto. It's like, that's <laughs> it's so cool. He went full circle. He went full circle on it. 93 was a huge hit with um with cool runnings that movie made a ton of money and Ackroyd was a lot of fun in it and i think it got him back into the four million dollars a movie club he wanted to get back to like making he was making good money after like a mini little slump what do you think his career would have been you kind of touched on it i think he would have went a little more with the serious side i think he would have got into directing 
So he died um, March 4th of 94, and they had just finished filming Wagons East, him and Richard Lewis. So that was his last flick. Yeah. I I really, in my heart, I would hope he wouldn't have kind of faded out and become the guy that you're like, oh, great, this guy's in the movie. You know, like, uh, but I do think, I think he would have gotten taken serious. And I think he would have won an award. And I think he would have started going behind the camera more. I I agree. And I also think when you look at the guys that lasted from that era, you know, Martin Short, Steve Martin, um, Eugene Levy, um, Bill Murray. And yeah. I think that that Candy had that kind of magic where there was no reason why he wasn't, you know, the world wasn't going to turn on him. There was no scandal yeah. that was going to come out or anything. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said about the, just the people you mentioned and like we're talking Rick Moranis, there's a, a big moral compass on that group. Mm-hmm. Even Belushi who died of an overdose and, you know, was the big party animal. There was still something very moral about him. He wasn't a dirtbag. And I feel like the guys that came out of that era really figured it out, how to find a balance. And well, it wasn't about big fame. Well, a lot of them were party animals, but that's not the same as dirtbag. Yeah. And Candy was just sucking down those rum and cokes. I mean, he and chain smoking the whole time and overeating. But yeah. he was a family guy that, you know, had bought land and had horses and loved his family. And yeah. he just wanted to be around people. And apparently, if you brought up going on a diet, you would quietly be phased out of his inner circle. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of tough. Yeah, I, I, I see that group. And you look and you just, there's something there that's a little more than just like these star power, star fucker people. Yeah. Even somebody, I mean, Steve Martin is as big as you can get in anything. I mean, at any level of any writer, as a writer, as a director, as an actor, as a live performer, stand up, he, music. He accomplished everything at the highest level you could do. He still comes across as a very moral person. He's still to this day like a good guy. And he doesn't have to be. And I feel like John Candy wouldn't be any different than any of those guys. I think he would be the same stand-up guy that he was then. But I think he would have taken different directions. I think he would have got behind the camera and we'd all be talking about like, do you remember John Candy used to be in movies? Wow. I wonder if that's what it would have been. I know that he would have thrown himself into it because even when he sees something like JFK, he was like straight up New Orleans accent and he was always Canadian and everything. Like, you know, he wasn't (laughs) even when he wasn't Canadian, which was most of the time, like the Canada just oozed out of him. Yeah. And um, I I think he really loved it. Chicago. Chicago and Canada are like the same thing yeah. just from watching those movies. But he had his list of who he wanted to work with. He wanted to do a Scorsese movie, Brian De Palma and all these people. And wow. who knows? Who knows if it would have happened? So you sent me this question. And this might be the question to end on. 
uh, I don't even know how to ask it. Should we go with who's your favorite John Candy character or which character do you want to go on a road trip with? Ooh, let's answer both. All right. Favorite candy character, Buck Russell, Jack Chester, Chet Ripley, Barf, Del Griffith, Spike Nolan. That's Brewster's Millions. Gus Polanski. Oh, I love Gus. That's who I go on. That's sitting in the back of a moving van playing polka. Haven't seen my family in years. Polka King of the Midwest. (laughs) Polka, polka, Um, polka. (laughs) Maybe you know him. Uh, Buck Russell is the best character. Yeah. Yeah. No, wait. I'm going to. Del Griffin is the best character. Buck Russell is who I'd go on the road with. God, I hate that we have to agree. Yeah. Yeah. Because that it's I don't want to go with Dale. Yeah, Dell Dell would make you insane. I saw the movie. I don't want to have a breakdown. <laughs> but no. Buck, I feel like, especially in that big car of his on the air shocks just bouncing down the highway. By the way, his his car and Uncle Buck is the shittiest car of all time. The fact that he's got a wife, a fiance in the tire business, and he's locked into that whole world of automotive, you know, and body experts, <laughs> and he's got—you've never seen a car that's that terrible. See, now you're saying it's terrible. I am going. I would love to ride in that car. <laughs> that looks I would like take my car. But your gas mileage with any candy character is going to be trash. That's a big man. Oh, that's true. But he's worth it. But uh, that those air shocks going down the road, just listen. I would be in heaven, stopping at every shitty dive bar and watching an inning or two of baseball and drinking a beer and then hopping back. I'd be 500 pounds by the end of the road trip. And his taste in music is great. Every character of his, every movie, he listens to good music and has a ball doing it. That is a true statement. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I think we're going to end on that. Tell me, tell everyone where they can find you. What do they need to know? Uh, you can go to markrickadonna.com for any of the socials, but uh, I also have a podcast and we have to get you and Dan on uh, drinks, jokes, and storytelling. It's uh, on anywhere you can get podcasts, but it's also uh, on YouTube. You can watch the video because we do a lot of video stuff and um, basically uh, I like to get drunk with comics and tell joke jokes. By the way, having gotten drunk with you before and told some jokes, I can assure anybody listening that it's a damn good time. <laughs> <That's>, you, <laughs> Mark, is a good drinking buddy. Ah, oh, I, uh, I, that's one of the best compliments I can get. It'd <laughs> be true. a tenth of John Candy. I'd be a happy man. <laughs> uh, you guys can, you know, find me on Instagram and on my Facebook page and all that and tell your buddies to uh, subscribe and, uh, and listen. And, uh, and the note that we're going to go out on is let's try to be uplifting because 
because we I agree with you that John Candy is uh, is somebody that we think about around the holidays. And I know 2020 has been a tough year. And I think we all have some Del Griffith in us. So we all carry around some hurt and we might try to be happy. And there's going to be people out there that provoke us and and say hurtful things. But we should aspire to respond to those people more closely to the way that Dell responds to somebody saying hurtful things. And that's what we're going to go out on. Guys, thank you so much for listening. And uh, and let's listen to our friend, Dell. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. This has been a presentation of the Wasted Robot Network. For more information on this and other podcasts, visit us on Facebook and Instagram at Wasted Robot Records. 